0: If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word from the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And this will be our sermon text for the evening. Open your hearts and open your ears to hear the word of God, for the scriptures tell us that the grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Hear God's word. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. And all the church says, you may be seated. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, you see that the gospel has been spreading and moving out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and towards the ends of the earth. And Luke is telling us about the expansion of the gospel and how the gospel is moving from place to place as messengers of the gospel move out and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit throughout the world. And now we have Paul arriving at the city of Ephesus on mission with the Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them in the triune name of God, and to teach them to obey everything the Lord Jesus Christ commanded him. Paul is on mission with Christ in the world, as is the church that sent him on this mission. And Paul has traveled hundreds of miles in the book of Acts as we trace out his story. And now we see him not only traveling by sea, as he's done so many times, but here taking the road through the interior and arriving at Ephesus. Before he arrived, there was a man named Apollos. In context, Apollos, who was a man who was known as someone who was mighty in preaching and teaching. A man who had a good grasp of the Scriptures. If you go back to chapter 18, you'll find that this man was actively involved in preaching and trying to bring about the Word of God to bear on the world around him. He had an accurate knowledge of God's Word, but it was but it was. It was not complete and full. So it was another way of saying it was slightly inaccurate on some things. The men that Paul meets in this story are men who had heard Apollos teach and they had been influenced by his doctrine and by his ministry. And it was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. And that's the issue. I just want to bring you up to speed on what's going on and why Apollos was mentioned in context with Paul. Basically, their paths crossed. Paul had been in Corinth, now he's in Ephesus. Apollos had been in Ephesus, he's on his way to Corinth. So Paul encounters some disciples. A disciple is a follower of someone else, a student or a servant of someone else. And they get into a discussion about the Holy Spirit and baptism. This is one of the most contemporary feeling stories in the book of Acts, because if you think about what's happening here and look at your own life and look at all of the different churches around us and conversations that pastors and church members have, these are the things that come up quite often. Discussions about the Holy Spirit and baptism and their relationship to each other. Years ago, I was at the Tulsa workshop, which was a big event if you were in churches of Christ and many people would go up to that. And there was a man who was preaching from this passage in those days. And he said just nonchalantly that Paul asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the disciples said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And the insert inserted quote that I remembered all these years is this man said, and that's how Paul knew that they were some of our brethren. Because there are Christian traditions that don't know much about the Holy Spirit or anything about the Holy Spirit. And this is certainly what's happening in this place. We didn't even know, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And the fact that they were ignorant about the person and work of the Holy Spirit is not the same as some of us saying, I don't really understand who the Holy Spirit is or what He does. This was people saying, what are you talking about, Paul? We don't know anything about any Holy Spirit. Which prompted him to ask, into what were you baptized? Into whom were you baptized? And notice the the answer here is... Uh, it tells us quite a bit. John's baptism, they said. John's baptism. This is the baptism that Apollos was preaching. It's all he knew. It's all he had heard. And think about how many years have passed now. Uh, A few decades have passed since John the Baptist was on the scene preaching baptism of repentance and preparing people for the coming of Jesus. Jesus and his apostles had been teaching a different baptism. Baptism. A baptism that didn't just include water, but also included the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so these guys are far behind in their doctrinal and theological development. And so Paul is very curious about this. Into what were you baptized or what baptism did you receive? If we were to ask that question to our neighbors around us today, many would not give the kind of answer these guys did. In other words, they wouldn't be thinking in terms of The baptism of John the Baptist or the baptism of of Jesus Christ. The answers that we would get in our day and age would be, oh, I received a Catholic baptism. Or I received a Presbyterian baptism. Or I received a Baptist baptism, right? Because people think denominationally about baptism. But Paul is thinking more deeply about this. Not just what baptism did you receive, but into whom were you baptized? And they say John's baptism. So they consider themselves followers of John the Baptist in some way. Now, what I want you to note, you know this already, but I need to highlight it, is that not all baptism is Christian baptism. There are all kinds of baptisms in the world. All kinds of religious groups practice baptism. Some are cults and some are sects, but all kinds of religious groups pa- practice some kind of baptism or another. What we're interested in is what Paul was interested in, and that is Christian baptism. And we want to draw a distinction here between Christian baptism and non Christian baptisms. John's baptism, as good as it was in his time and at his place, was not Christian baptism, and it was not legitimate baptism any longer. In other words, Paul couldn't say, well, that baptism is okay, we'll just move on. No, Paul had to say, John's baptism is no longer in effect. It's no longer useful for our purposes because John himself put a timestamp on it. He put a shelf life on his baptism and said, you should believe in the one coming after, which is in Jesus Christ. And so, Paul has to teach these disciples more accurately the way of the Lord. You know, this is the case in your life and the case of lives of people around you that many people here in the Bible Belt have had some exposure to the Christian faith and have learned a variety of things, true and not so true, about the Christian faith. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we find ourselves needing to change our minds about things, needing to mature in our understanding, needing to even repent of some things that were wrong. And this has been the experience of our congregation for many years now, is we had exposure to the things of God, but we've been trying to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say, especially as we look at the relationship between the word of the gospel and the sacraments, we've grown quite a bit in our understanding of these things as the disciples in Ephesus needed to do. They had to change their minds about baptism. They had to change their mind about what constituted a valid, legitimate baptism. And I imagine for them it was difficult to do because it wasn't very long ago that someone came through with a lot of passion and zeal, teaching the things of God, and they embraced that. And now they hear someone else who said, wait a minute, it was good as far as it went, but you need to change your mind about this. And so after Paul pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ, notice he was echoing the message of John the Baptist after he Pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5 says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, what happened here? Was this a rebaptism? If you've been around me very long, you'll know how much I despise rebaptism and fight against it every chance I get. But here it appears that we have the story of a rebaptism. And we do. So why is this re-baptism good and other re- rebaptisms not so good? Well, the reason this one is good and right is because the people who were baptized in John's baptism were not baptized in a Christian baptism. In other words, it didn't count as a Christian baptism. They needed to be baptized in the Christian baptism to come and be a part of Christ and his church. And that's the difference. I'm a part of our Theological Examining Committee in our Presbytery, and when we have candidates come through, we always ask them this question. Under what circumstances or in what conditions would you ever rebaptize someone? It's a bit of a trick question, right? A bit of a trick question, but it's a thought-provoking question. And what we want them to say is only under very few circumstances or conditions. If someone was baptized in a cult or in a sect, if they were baptized uh, in a way that is not consistent with what the scriptures tell us about Christian baptism in the name of the triune God uh, with water by a minister according to the gospel, then we don't count it as a valid baptism. We have a lot of interesting discussions over that. Now, the question is not, the answer to the question is not, well, if they were baptized outside of our denomination, we would require them to be baptized again. That is not actually what we teach and believe or practice. If someone is baptized um, in the triune name of God with water by a Christian minister and we say that's a valid, legitimate baptism. And we'll receive people from a variety of Christian traditions and denominations on the basis of that is a Christian baptism. And so if you ever question that or worry about that for yourself because you were baptized perhaps in a Baptist church or the Church of Christ or a Catholic church or something like that, then put your heart and mind at ease. If you were baptized in this way, this is Christian baptism. And this is what these guys learned. Now... If you have this in your background, this story in your background, of these disciples that Paul met, who had been baptized in John's baptism, and now they have to be baptized according to Christian baptism, you can imagine how they might have wrestled with that through the years. We'll fast forward a little bit of time, and they will get a letter from Paul, the book of Ephesians, will come to them, and Paul will remind them that there is one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one baptism. And that one baptism is not just the baptism of Christ into which we are all baptized, but that one baptism is a baptism that is characterized this way as the washing of water with the word. It is the work of Christ washing his people with the word of the gospel and bringing them into his community, into his body, and even the language there, preparing his bride for marriage. And so it's covenantal, deeply covenantal. The question Paul asked them is worth considering for your own life as well. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And this is important because of something Paul says when he writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 1. He reminds them that, God who has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that the Father who has arranged for their redemption in Christ, in Christ who has accomplished their redemption in His ministry, His sacrificial death at the cross, His resurrection and ascension, the Spirit has come to apply the redemptive work of Christ to them. And Paul says to them in Ephesians 1, when you heard the word of truth and you believe the gospel of Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. This is why the question that Paul asked them is so important. It's not just about experience in life. It's about getting the truth of the gospel into their bones and into their soul. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? In other words, were you sealed for the day of redemption when you believed? Did anyone tell you about the assurance of salvation that is promised and held out to you in the gospel? And the fact that they didn't know anything about that was alarming to Paul. This was not just technical theological discussion, but it was about Paul trying to get to the nuts and bolts of the gospel. They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in distinction from baptized into John the Baptist. And now they have received what God has promised to them. Something I want you to note here is hard on the heels of their receiving baptism. Notice what happens in verse 6. This might be surprising to you. In verse 6, Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men and all. 12 is significant because these are Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people and 12 kind of matches or parallels the Uh, The 12 apostles and these guys are going to be sent on mission into Asia, Asia Minor, the province of Asia. They're going to be sent on mission to bring the gospel to bear to their own people. The fact that Luke mentions that they spoke in tongues and prophesied is important because go all the way back to the beginning of this series. And what did we see? We saw that on the day of Pentecost. Father and Son pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. The Spirit breaks into the world, begins empowering the church for gospel mission and ministry. People are baptized into Christ. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Christ. And they go on mission in the world. And everywhere the gospel goes, you see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is one or two or three steps ahead of the people of God. He is there long before they arrive. He is preparing the way for messengers of the gospel to come in. Jesus had said to the church, begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And as you follow the story through the book of Acts, you see that every time the church moves from Jerusalem to the next stage, Judea, the Holy Spirit is active and manifesting his power and glory to help establish the gospel in that place. And then they go to Samaria. Same thing. The Holy Spirit manifests his power and glory in that place and establishes the church. And now that we're moving towards the ends of the earth, out into the Gentiles, full on Gentile mission, we see the same thing happen. Holy Spirit manifesting his power and glory to establish the gospel in that community to bring about this new thing in the world. We don't see this very much happening in the United States. We don't see it very often in the Bible belts. And the reason for that, at least one of the big reasons for that, is because the gospel has been so well established and established for so long among us that this sort of manifestation of the Spirit's power is unnecessary by the spirit standards maybe not by ours but certainly by his unnecessary this is what he does at the beginning of a mission at the beginning of a church plant at the beginning of some new work these are the kinds of things you might see in the infant stage of the church but as the church matures and grows the spirit's work deepens becomes less obvious and more uh, internal uh, deeper and and working in in very profound ways in the life of the church. But I want to assure you that the Holy Spirit has not abandoned the church. The Holy Spirit has not rejected the people of God. Just because we don't always see this kind of thing among us doesn't mean the Holy Spirit no longer works or is no longer active with us. It's not like the man who told me years ago when I was living in Colorado that After the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible, He went back to heaven and and He left us the Scriptures and that's it. So we're on our own with the Bible. There are people who profess to be Christians who actually believe that kind of thing. And yet the Scriptures tell us that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. You can have the Holy Spirit and not experience any of these kinds of things. These are sort of superficial. They're on the surface of the life of the church. What Paul and the apostles and Christ are really interested in is the deep work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives in conforming us to the image of Jesus. And so you might feel cheated in some ways that you've never spoken in tongues, you've never prophesied. Why can't this happen to you? Well, there are many reasons for that. The Spirit gives gifts as He determines and we could say he simply hasn't determined to give us those gifts. But he has given us something greater and better and truer than these things. He has given us Christ. He has given us hope and faith and love. And he, has, he is working in us to shape us into the image of Jesus. And I hope you find encouragement, encouragement in that truth. I also hope that you can be encouraged when you hear missionaries from around the world report on what God is doing as the gospel breaks out into new places throughout the world. It's not uncommon for missionaries to tell us about mysterious and marvelous works of the Holy Spirit in different parts of the world where Christ has not yet been proclaimed or among people who do not yet know the Lord. And they will report these kinds of things. And so whatever your theological convictions might be concerning cessationism or continuationism or some other ism, just know that whatever your theological convictions are, the Holy Spirit doesn't have to respect those convictions at all. He blows where he pleases. He does what he wants and he does it for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of the church. Now, that's chasing a rabbit just a little bit, but I wanted you to understand something of why uh, some people experience this type of power and, and some don't. Okay. Notice what Paul does here, though. You have this amazing thing happening in Ephesus. The gospel is breaking into that city, breaking into the lives of individuals in that city. And Paul continues to preach the word of God. He continues to minister the word of God in that city among Jewish people and among non-Jewish people. Verse 8 says that Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months Three months, maybe that's as long as they could tolerate him. Maybe that's as far as they wanted to go. And they said, (laughs) We've heard enough from you, man. Uh, And you see that uh, the part of the reason is the ESV puts here that he was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. There are actually two things going on there. So you might make a mental note of this to see that that Paul was not a jerk as maybe the ESV makes him seem arguing, uh, <laughs> arguing persuasively. There are two things going on here. On one hand, he was debating with them or discussing with them. We get the word dialogue from the word that's used here in Greek. He's dialoguing with them. It's, it's back and forth. It, he's teaching. They're asking questions. He's asking questions. They're answering. It's a dialogue. It's not a monologue like I'm doing right now. And He's also persuading them. Persuading them. And the idea of persuading is you're making a case. You're pleading with someone. You're, you're hoping and praying that, that you can win them over to your side. You see the two things here? So arguing persuasively Really paints Paul in a uh, paints a bad picture of Paul and puts him in a bad light here. Paul is dialoguing with them and persuading them, and this is very interpersonal uh, conversation uh, and con- uh, communication with these folks at the synagogue. But after three months, they can't take it, and you see what happens. Some of them became obstinate, obstinate. We get our word sclerosis from this. They, they didn't just become obstinate, but they were hardened, right? They got, they got really hardened against him. And they refused to believe. Actually, it just says they disbelieved. They disbelieved. And they publicly maligned the way. Really clean that up a little bit. They actually just cursed the way. So after three months of... Dialogue and persuasion, conversation, interactive communication with them. This is the result. Obstinence, disbelief, and cursing. That was their response. And so what did Paul do? He just left. He just went away. He left them and he took the disciples with him. So there were some who believed and wanted to follow that teaching. So he took them with him and he had the same discussion. Same word used here. Same Dialogue and debate daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this is what we might say, this is one of the first seminaries that we ever see established in the history of the church. They meet in the hall of Tyrannus. This is a missional seminary, by the way. It's not an academic seminary. It's not a purely theological seminary. This is a missional seminary. You see the purpose of it all is that, as Paul was having this dialogue and discussion with these disciples, his intent and purpose is that they would hear the gospel of Christ and then go out and engage the world around them with the gospel. in other words, there's no ivory towerism taking place here. he doesn't allow his students to to stay in the ivory tower and have all of those uh, high octane conversations without then coming down and engaging the culture and getting involved in the lives of people. For two years, people are involved in this missional seminary. And at the end of that two year period, when they looked around Asia Minor, notice what Luke tells us. This went on for two years. And at the end of the two years, you see that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This does not mean that everyone who heard the word of the Lord became a disciple of Jesus or became a follower of Christ or that everyone was baptized or that everyone obeyed the gospel. That's not Luke's point. His point is that the gospel went out through that whole region. Now, this is is a very important point to make, and I won't dwell on it for sake of time, but keep in mind here that What Luke is telling us in his story in the book of Acts is very different than the stories that are foisted on us in our day. This is not about church growth. This is not about the spread or the expansion of any denomination. This is about the expansion and the spread of the word of God. The expansion and the spread of the word of God. And so Paul and his students are out preaching the gospel in the province of Asia And they are literally preaching in this way that we're going to preach to anyone and everyone and let God sort them out. Let God do the work. Let the spirit move them to faith or not. Let God do his work in their lives. But our responsibility is to get the gospel out to the community. And that's what you see Paul doing here. So this is a remarkable story here at the in the book of Acts. Just another reminder of the work of God of getting the gospel of grace uh, not only from Jerusalem out into mixed, you know, Jewish and uh, Gentile communities, but now going towards the ends of the earth, going out into hard places where Christ is not yet known. All of this happens according to the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is never alone on his mission. He's never alone on his mission, for Christ had said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, even to the end of the age. And you can certainly see that here in Acts 19. So what does this have to do with all of us? Does it have anything to do with us? Can we learn anything from it? Well, sure we can. We can learn that no matter who we meet in the world, no matter who we meet in our community, people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be followers of Christ, are people who often need to grow up in their knowledge and understanding of the gospel and the sacraments of Jesus Christ. And we can be a part of helping them in some ways. We can also be challenged by people who are on mission with Christ in ways that we are not. And we can be encouraged to to join them and learn from them, to continue on mission. Remembering that it is about the Word of God getting out, the Word of the Lord getting out into our community. Um, And we can be encouraged by that. We can also see that even though we're on mission with the Lord, it's not going to be easy. It never has been easy. It's been difficult for us in many ways. We have come across in the years, we've come across people who were obstinate, people who disbelieved, people uh, who even cursed the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will continue to happen. And we will experience these things so long as we follow Christ into the world. But we can also be of good courage that Christ is with us. And the Spirit continues to work among us and through us and in the lives of other people. And God is constantly uh, fulfilling His promises. And as the prophets say, the Word of God never returns empty. We might not always see the results that we desire. We might not always experience the things that we long for. But God promises that His Word never returns empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent out. We don't always know what that purpose is, but God does, and he's pleased with it. And to the degree that we have participated in the mission of the gospel in our corner of the world, to the degree that we have helped the gospel spread out to others and spread out to each other and spread out to our neighbors here in this area. And we have participated with Christ in his mission with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we can rest knowing that God has done his work among us and continues to do so. It's about the word of the gospel getting out. I'll wrap up with one brief story. A couple of years ago, I was out in our community here. And uh, it was the first day I wore my clergy collar, I was scared to death. I felt very weird doing so. But I met a girl that day two and a half years ago. And to this day, we have kept in touch. We have prayed for each other. You all have participated in helping her in her life. This morning, 5.30 in the morning, I got a message, a text message from her that said, she said, Pastor, I just want to know, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can I lose my salvation? That's how my day began today. By meeting a random person in our community two and a half years ago and to see, to wake up and see that the Spirit of God and the Word of God are still working in her life. What an incredible way to begin the Lord's Day. And that touched off a a brief series of, uh, a brief uh, text messaging with her and sending things that I've taught you and written about. and, and, uh, And she found it to be very encouraging. You've never seen her. She's never been in our church one time. But I can say with confidence that the word of God has gone out to that part of our province. It's gone out into her life and into her family. And that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? And there's no telling how many more people out there would say the same kind of thing, that this is what this congregation has done in our community.